Hello, and welcome to Thank You for Toilet Paper, a history of the little things, a podcast where we talk about a few things to be grateful for and the history or stories of how they came to be. I'm your host, Elizabeth Miller. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's take off. I have a number of objects behind the door in my room that I felt represent my personality in a way. It's a very odd assortment of things. I have a walking stick. It was carved by my father um, and he carved my name into it and made a face of a knot in the wood with like a tie and everything. It's pretty fun. I have a sturdy umbrella that I got during my time in Germany and I have a sword given to me by my uncles and a kite. And the kite might have come from my sister, I'm not sure, but It's an awesome kite that I really haven't flown very much. It's a very random corner of things, and I find it absolutely delightful. From medieval swords to walking sticks to umbrellas and kites, I feel there's a little story about myself in that corner. That makes me perhaps uselessly happy for some reason. I hope that you too have something that you feel represents a part of your story and just makes you happy. So today we're going to talk about one of the things in the corner of my room behind my door the kite. So buckle up, because here we go. Although we don't know for sure when the kite was invented, it is believed that the first kite was invented in China some 2,000 years ago. One story goes that a farmer in China tied a string to his hat to keep it from blowing away in the wind, and this gave us our very first kite. Other sources suggest that kites were used by fishermen in Malaysia, Indonesia, and the South Pacific using natural leaves and reeds to aid in their fishing efforts, so it actually could have started there. In 450 BC in China, a Chinese philosopher named Mao Tse spent three years constructing a bird out of wood to fly on a tethered string. Some have suggested that this could also be considered a kite. The earliest Chinese kites were flat and rectangular, as opposed to the more bowed shapes that are popular today. Some kites even had whistles attached to them so they could sing and make music as they were flown. In 200 BC, we get our first written account of a kite in use, and it happened to be used for military purposes. In the Han Dynasty, a Chinese general named Han Xin used a kite to measure how far his army would have to tunnel in order to get past a city's defensive measures. This innovative idea allowed him and his army to tunnel under the walls and attack the city by surprise. In the Song Dynasty, a kite was used as a weapon. This kite, the fire crow, had incendiary powder, a fuse, and a stick of incense. In 549 AD, paper kites were used to deliver messages for rescue missions. Chinese traders traveled along and took the kites with them wherever they went, introducing the kites to Korea, Japan, India, and many other places. Each country assigned their own specific meaning and use to the kite. Another example of the kite's usefulness in military action, in the Silla dynasty in Korea, in about 600, General Kim Yusin had orders to take care of and subdue a revolt. His army, however, had seen a falling star in the night sky and considered it a bad omen and would not fight. In order to rally the troops, General Kim used a kite to fly a fireball back up into the sky, so it looked as though the comet had reascended to the heavens. This calmed his troops, and they were able to rally to defeat the rebellion. In Japan, the use of kites was actually not first introduced as a military tactic, but was instead introduced by Buddhist monks in the 7th century. These kites were used to ward off evil spirits and to assure good harvest. 
There's an interesting story about a creative thief in Japan who strapped himself to a kite and used it to fly above the Nagoya castle in an effort to steal a golden statue from the top of the castle. As he flew over, however, he was only able to steal a few pieces of gold. He was later caught bragging about his high-flying adventure and was severely punished. During the Edo period, flying kites became very popular in Japan because even the classes of people below the samurai could enjoy the entertaining activity. It got to the point, though, where the Edo, now Tokyo, government was concerned that the people were neglecting their work because they were flying kites, and the government tried to discourage kite flying. When it comes to kite flying in India, we have pictures depicting the activity from the Mughal period in 1500. Often, the stories told that had to do with kites had to do with a clever young man using the kite to send love messages to a woman kept in seclusion from the world. Fighter kites also became popular. The objective of flying the fighter kites, which were more diamond-shaped and had no tails, was to cut the string of your opponent's kite line. These fighter kites are called putang in India. In Indonesia, we also find the oldest depiction of a kite flying with a cave drawing from around 9500 to 9000 BC. It is in a cave in Muna Island and depicts a kite called the Kagati, which is still used by modern Muna people today. In Micronesia, we find stories of people using leaf kites to carry fishing bait further out into the water. In Polynesia, there's a myth of two gods, brothers, who had a competition to see who could fly their kite the highest. Through this competition, they introduced the kites to the humans. There are still contests on the islands to fly kites the highest, with the winner, the winning kite, being dedicated to the gods. Marco Polo shared stories of kites in Europe in the 13th century. Apparently, he had witnessed the Chinese merchants using kites to predict whether or not their journeys and trades would result in prosperity. Later, sailors in the 16th and 17th century brought kites from Japan and Malaysia home. Later, by the 18th or 19th century, kites were used in the West for scientific discovery. You had Benjamin Franklin use his kite for his famous study of lightning, electricity, and weather. You had Alexander Wilson and Thomas Melville in Glasgow made the first use of kites to conduct experiments to learn more things about wind and weather in 1749. Later, Lawrence Hargrave and William Eddy devised kites used to carry meteorological instruments and cameras into the sky to help the U.S. Weather Service. Kites were also instrumental in man's journey to the skies with the development of the airplane. That included everybody involved in that, from the Wright brothers to Cayley, all of that. Before we got to the airplane, however, kites had been used to help another mode of transportation. A man named George Peacock in 1822 used kites to pull his carriage. He was able to travel as far as 100 miles at 20 miles an hour. He used the kites in order to avoid paying road taxes, because at the time, the taxes were based on the number of horses pulling your carriage, and Mr. Peacock, with his kites, had none. That sounds like an excellent clue game to me, Mr. Peacock, on the road, with the kite. Anyways... We also had Samuel Franklin Cody, who used his patented kite in 1903 to cross the English Channel in under four hours. Later in the 1980s, Peter Lynn of New Zealand created a stainless steel buggy that was also pulled along and powered by kites. Peter Lynn also had the claim to fame of building the world's largest kite multiple times. Later in 1999, an expedition team even used kites to pull sleds to the North Pole. By World War I, the kite was back in use for military purposes, only this time in Europe. The British, French, Russian, and Italian armies used kites for signals and to observe enemies until the airplane came more into use. 
kites were also used by the German and U.S. navies, with the Germans using man-lifting kites just above their submarines, and the U.S. Navy using kites to keep airplanes from flying too low over intended targets. Airplane pilots, who became lost at sea, also had kites handy to help identify their location. Kites were almost used to recover Gemini space capsules in the 1950s and 60s, but NASA eventually went with a parachute recovery system instead. In 1972, Peter Powell's special kite, a toy dual-line stunter, brought the kite back into the public eye, not just as a fun activity, but also now as a sport. There are competitions for kite flyers to perform intricate tricks with their kites all around the world. Another example of a kite sport would be, of course, kite surfing. So how does it work? When flying a kite, there are three main forces at play. The upward force of the lift, of the wind, the downward force of gravity, and the drag on the kite itself. As the kite flyer, your job is to help manage the balance between these three forces. And here, it's all about angles. You want to angle your kite correctly so that the majority of the wind against your sail is directed down, creating lift. If the wind is forced up and over your kite, this forces it down, whereas the air deflected down from your kite produces the lift. Turbulent wind forces push against your kite, reducing the lift and creating drag, forcing the kite backwards, but you have the string in your hand which keeps the kite from moving backwards, and all of this together allows you to fly your kite. Now let's come back to the importance of angles. When we talk about the bridle of your kite and the toe point, angles are very important. The toe point is where your line connects to the bridle, and the bridle can be adjusted to adjust the angle of your kite when facing the wind. For low wind speeds, you'll want to move your toe point slightly towards the nose of your kite. And for higher wind speeds, you'll want to move the toe point slightly towards the tail of your kite. Because the air currents can interact with a kite similar to water currents, you can even fly underwater kites. Throughout history, kite flying has also been used for celebration. In Pakistan, kites are often flown as part of the celebration of spring called Jeshanay Baharun. During this celebration, you'll find fighter kites trying to cut each other's strings as part of the competition. This is known as pecha. In Vietnam, Bali, and Malaysia, kites have different attachments to help them make musical sounds as they fly through the air. These attachments range from small flutes to rows of gourds with slots cut in them to make the sound. In Japan, kite flying is traditionally a children's activity during the new year and are also flown during the boys' festival in May. Some areas will celebrate the birth of a new boy by flying a kite. In Brazil and Colombia, kite flying is a popular children's activity. In Chile, kite flying is also a popular activity when celebrating Independence Day. In Guyana, the kite flying takes on religious significance as a way to celebrate Easter. You can even find several kite museums around the world, the largest of which is in Weifang, China. Kite flying has brought people and cultures all over the world a variety of gifts over the years, from enjoyable playtime activities to actual scientific discovery, a front runner to manned flight or military prowess. The kite has a varied history. I'm grateful for kites, and what an interesting history to go from a means of delivering messages to loved ones, to measuring distances, participating in military tactics and scientific discovery, and eventually to end up in the hands of children and professionals with the purpose of joy, play, and sport. That's a fantastic story. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day, and maybe take some time to fly a kite.